Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hey, friends, thanks for joining our podcast. I want to tell you about something really new and exciting called Patreon.com slash BP Show. It's a great way to get uh, exclusive interviews with newsmakers, voicemails, personalized videos, political commentary, and early access to a special podcast called The Making of Bernie Sanders. Go to patreon.com slash BP show, patreon.com slash BP show. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is the Bill Press Show live at youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. Miracles do happen. Chris Christie got a new job. (laughs) What do you say, folks? Great to see you today. It is Tuesday, Tuesday, January 30. Yes, indeed. Uh, Big day in Washington, D.C. Helicopters already hovering overhead. It is the State of the Union at 9 o'clock Eastern. Uh, Donald Trump's first State of the Union. Last year was just called a uh, speech to a joint session of Congress. Uh, I think the uh, CNN headline uh, says it best this morning, quote, Trump to project success as Washington rots. (laughs) That kind of sums it up. Uh, And it's a bunch of rotting mess we're going to hear from Donald Trump tonight at the State of the Union. But that's not the only thing we have to talk about here on this Monday. Yes, indeed, the deputy director of the FBI Stepping down abruptly yesterday, finally giving in to the pressure that came from uh, Donald Trump himself, who has ridiculed him publicly. We're talking about Andrew McCabe, of course. Uh, Pressure from the attorney general, pressure from the FBI director, and uh, Andy McCabe finally just said, screw it, I'm out of here and I'm leaving today. Mentioned the State of the Union tonight. The Cleveland Indians have finally gotten rid of Chief Wahoo after 70-some years. And, uh, yes, the Republicans on the House Intelligence Committee yesterday voted to release this memo attacking the FBI and the Department of Justice. All of that coming up. All of that you want to talk about, we know. So send us your comments on Twitter at BP Show. Great lineup of guests today. We'll tell you all about them. Get right into the news of the day. But first, this is the Full Court Press. Just a couple of other stories making news. Bill, as you just mentioned, the Cleveland Indians are changing a lot of things up about how their uniforms look in 2019. They're getting rid of Chief Wahoo. Now, if you don't know about Chief Wahoo, you don't know about the Indians, their mascot is a cartoonish grinning, red-faced 
Indian. Racist, total racist slogan. Full-on uh, racist cartoon. mascot. Full-on yeah, racist full on. Uh, cartoon that they've been using. Well, uh, some fans have voiced some concern with the fact that they have this racist uh, mascot. Other fans think that uh, Chief Wahoo actually belongs with the organization. Here's one fan that they caught up with uh, yesterday. They were going to eliminate Chief Wahoo, but I think it should be always a staple of the Indians. There's so many different things to get upset about. A mascot should be the last thing on your mind. Too much going on in the world. That's, that's the icon. You cannot mess with history and should never be even considered. Well, yesterday the Indians said they are going to mess with history. Chief Wahoo has been on the uniform since 1947. And again, they're going to have it on in this coming season. Apparently, it's too short to like. Act, yeah, there's not enough yeah. time to actually make such a big change. But 2019, Chief Wahoo will be no more. Yeah. Okay. Well, somebody else then call up uh, Dan Snyder. Yeah. And say uh, there's this other name on the Battle Washington football team. Yeah. That ought to go to. Yeah. And if Cleveland can do it. Washington can Damn do right it. they can. I mean, look, part of what you just mentioned there, I mean, this is going to cost the Indians a lot of money. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like they've got a That's lot of merchandise. It. That has, but like, it's, not, it's not that hard to do. You know, in the 1950s, that would have been funny. Sure. You know, sure. there were racist cartoons about Mexicans sleeping under a sombrero. Oh, yeah, yeah. All those things. We saw them. Yeah. Yeah. No longer. Yeah. No longer. The times have changed. Uh, by the way, this is just going to break your heart, Bill. You know, Steve Wynn, the uh, oh, casino no. billionaire, yeah. Yeah. Finance chair, former finance chair of the Republican <laughs> Party, uh, report has come out that says that after these allegations surfaced, the Wall Street Journal says that he has lost $463 million. Yeah. And this is a story that's only been out for He's still a, a billionaire. Week. Oh, he's still going to have a lot of he's money. He's still a billionaire. He's yeah. still going to have a lot of money, but right. he's lost a lot of money, too. He owns half the strip or did own half the strip and sold the rest of it. Yeah. What a sleaze bag. Follow us on Twitter at BP Show. This is the Bill Press Show. Donald Trump to project success tonight while Washington rots. That's the headline on CNN this morning, talking about tonight's State of the Union. Uh, hello, everybody. What do you say? It's the Bill Press Show, and it's so good to see you. And welcome you to the program, and thank you for joining us here on a Tuesday January 30, 2018, coming to you live from Washington, D.C., our nation's capital. Uh, we're just down the street from us, about six blocks down the street. Uh, the nation will be focused tonight to hear Donald Trump's uh, glowing report about how wonderful everything is and how much people love him because, you know, that's all going to be part of his address he will probably tell us flat out that he is the best and the most popular president uh, this country has ever had. Uh, and that's just one of the big fat lies he will tell tonight in the State of the Union. Good to see you today. We're joining you uh, this fine day on online on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Great to see you out in Chicago, in the greater Chicago area, all on WCPT and uh in Indiana, on Indiana Talks, 
And how about it, those of you out there in TV land on Free Speech TV nationwide, you're looking good this morning as well. Thank you all for joining us for our roundup of the news of the day uh, with a good group of guests today. Uh, Jocelyn Fry is a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress is going to update us, uh, all of these coming in studio, update us on the Me Too movement. What is the latest? Where do we go from here? Uh, uh, after that, we'll be uh, talking uh, about the State of the Union and about the big memo released by the Republican and, uh, Republicans on the House Intelligence Committee yesterday with Chris Liu from uh, University of Virginia's Miller Center, a former Deputy Secretary of uh, Labor. And then from a Vox staff writer, Umer Irfan, to talk about how Scott Pruitt and Donald Trump are not only destroying the EPA, but destroying the American environment. So lots coming up. And yes, we start. At the very top of the news today, the big story is the deputy director of the FBI, Andrew McCabe, suddenly abruptly announced that he was quitting his job. He quit yesterday. Uh, He has been under immense pressure, of course, uh, to retire. Uh, I mean, to quit, to get out of there. Uh, Christopher Wray, FBI director, under intense pressure to fire McCabe. Uh, McCabe wanted to stay around uh, through maybe mid-March until he gets his full retirement benefits, Um, but he decided uh, to walk off the job yesterday. He'll still get paid, and he'll still get those retirement benefits. Uh, He's just going to take a couple of weeks downtime. But but make no mistake about it. This is not just one man deciding, you know, I'm too tired to continue this mess. This is one man being forced out. This is— part of a double play that we saw yesterday to, again, undermine in any way he can, for Donald Trump to undermine in any way he can, the Robert Mueller special investigation by throwing shade, by throwing cloud on the FBI, on Robert Mueller, and on the Department of Justice. Uh, And, of course, it started by firing James Comey, uh, then he gets Mueller. It started, as we find out, it, it continued by his trying to fire Robert Mueller, uh, and he couldn't. And it continues every day when Donald Trump talks about this as a waste of time. People don't care about it. They haven't found anything. It's just invented by the Democrats because they can't accept the fact that Hillary lost on and on and on the big nothing burger. Uh, anything they can do to discredit Robert Mueller because, you know why? They know that Mueller's going to come up with something that they did wrong. Either collusion with the Russians, which is looks more and more likely, uh, or obstruction of justice, which also looks more and more likely. Uh, so it could end up being both. Uh, and by the way, obstruction of justice is an impeachable offense. The first article of impeachment against Richard Nixon was obstruction of justice. The first article of impeachment against Bill Clinton was obstruction of justice, deliberately trying to interfere with the Justice Department and the wheels of the justice system. Uh, Boy, if Donald Trump hasn't done that, uh, I don't know who has. Uh, On McCabe, it really got personal with Donald Trump. I mean, talk about, you know, petty. It got to the point where it all started when... uh, the president fired James Comey. Uh, Carol Lee from Wall Street Journal reported this yesterday. 
And so Comey, if you recall, didn't know he was going to be fired. He was actually in Los Angeles or San Francisco. He was on the West Coast giving a speech. He found out he'd been fired on television. Okay. So he came back to Washington on the FBI plane that took him to California, which pissed Donald Trump off. He calls McCabe, who is now the acting director of the FBI. He was deputy. He was the acting director then until Christopher Wray was appointed. And he said, what the hell was Comey doing on a flight on an FBI plane coming back to Washington? And McCabe said, well, Mr. President, uh, I was not asked to authorize that. Uh, but if I had been asked, I would have approved it. I mean, he was a direct, He went out there as director. That would that was perfectly like, okay. I just want to the, peek inside of Trump's yeah, brain for yeah, a second, right? right? This like, is how petty this guy right, is. It's it's not just petty. It's just I don't know what it's 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 not it's just stupidity. I mean, you sent a guy out there. I mean, he was doing his business. When you yeah, go out there, I mean, and just because like if you were to take yeah. a work trip. Right. And heaven forbid you get fired while you're on your work trip. Yes. You can't just strand somebody out there because they were there on work business. What do you expect them well, to do? I would also point out that the plane had to come back anyway. <laughs> right. right. Now, whether Comey was on the plane or not, <laughs> it didn't cost the government any more money. Right. Uh, and like, do we really want to get into the Trump and, administration all the all, and all the train or the plane rides that they've been uh, taking and the money? Uh, yeah. That how about up? Donald Trump's plane ride to Davos, Switzerland? You don't think right. that costs a couple of pennies? Uh, and by the way, so any it, it didn't save the government any money. And don't you think the president of the United States has more to worry about? Should have more on his mind? Maybe the fact that the War in Afghanistan is uh, going to hell in a handbasket again 16 years later. But, you know, I digress. At any rate, so he calls McCabe. He says, so, uh, and then he says to McCabe, so, um, by the way, uh, your wife, why don't you ask your wife what it's like to be a loser? Quote, unquote. Ask your wife what it's like to be a loser. McCabe's wife, um, Julie, whatever it is, I think. Uh, had run for state senate in Virginia and lost. And she got some money from a PAC there that was controlled by the Democratic governor of Virginia. Shocking! Breaking news. Democratic governor of Virginia helps Democratic Senate candidate. Scandal. Scandal, yeah. Uh, So he says, okay, uh, yeah, why don't you ask your wife what it's like to be a loser and then hangs up the phone. That's how this all started uh, with McCabe. And then so Trump is slamming McCabe. Uh, Jeff Sessions pressures Christopher Wray, the new director of the FBI, to fire McCabe. Uh, Wray says, no, I'll quit first, whatever. And McCabe finally just threw it in threw it in yesterday. But again, this is all part of the effort to undermine Robert Mueller, to undermine the FBI, and to undermine the DOJ by throwing the suspicion that this is all just a bunch of our intelligence agencies and the Justice Department, his Justice Department, he wants us to believe, are just all a bunch of Hillary Clinton Democratic supporters who are out to get Donald Trump. By the way, when you're watching the State of the Union tonight and he's talking about all his big ideas and mm-hmm. accomplishments mm-hmm. and all that, just remember that these are the things that he really cares about. Yes. Petty, petty, petty fights with people that really shouldn't matter all that much to him. Right. Right. Like yeah. the wife of the deputy director. Yeah. I mean, like, what, what is he doing? 
It's like so, you said. I mean, surely he has better things to do with his time. I, obviously not. Uh, Senator Coons, uh, Christopher Coons from uh, Chris Coons from Delaware yesterday was asked about that. Again, putting into context, this is all Donald Trump versus the Justice Department. If you think about it, in the past year, we've had the President of the United States publicly criticize and attack his own Attorney General, the Deputy Attorney General, the Director of the FBI, whom he fired, the Deputy Director of the FBI. Um, this is an unprecedented assault on the independence of the FBI and the Department of Justice. And yet, at the briefing yesterday, Sarah Huckabee Sanders actually wants us to believe that the White House, after all I told you about Donald Trump's public and private comments about Andrew McCabe, she wants us to believe that the White House had absolutely nothing to do with this. The only thing that the president has applied pressure to is to make sure we get this resolved so that you guys and everyone else can focus on the things that Americans actually care about. Uh, there it is. Yeah. Okay. That's a, No, the White, White House had nothing to do with this. No. Uh-uh. Our fingerprints aren't on this body at all. Yeah. I mean, you can go back again to Trump's tweets and to his public comments. He had everything. He had everything to do with it. But again, I say that was just uh, the first move yesterday to undercut Robert Mueller. The second was House Intelligence Committee. We knew this was coming. We mentioned it yesterday. It was going to happen. House Intelligence Committees voted yesterday on a party line. Republicans, yes. Democrats, no. To release this memo that was written by Devin Nunez, the former chair, still chair. Well, we were just talking about how he had disappeared. He I mean, that was, it disappeared, was, yeah. So it was all Devin Nunez for like a couple of months last year. Well, remember, yeah, he made such. Uh, I mean, he, he made such a fool of himself by pretending he had this shocking, uh, top secret information that had been leaked. And he went down. It turned out it was just some little thing he'd gotten from the White House that was meaningless. I forget. It's been so long ago. But anyway, Devin Nunes, who has written this four, six-page memo, allegedly proving that the FBI and the entire Department of Justice are nothing but Hillary clones. Uh, and um, they've released this, which means it's five days. The White House has five days to review it. And if Donald Trump, he could release it himself at any time without without the memo being reviewed by the Justice Department or the FBI or the CIA or anybody else. And if he does nothing in five days, then the memo is automatically public. Uh, the Democrats have written, by the way, a 10-page rebuttal to this memo, which you know is just a piece of political garbage. Uh, they that the Republicans voted against releasing that rebuttal yesterday, but I'll bet you $100 right now that Adam Schiff or somebody, one of the Democrats on that committee, is going to release the Democratic memo. And if they don't, they ought, they ought to all lose their jobs. I mean, come yeah. on. Yeah, let's play hardball here, right? Uh, so this, again, is just one more effort to say that the, um, that the uh, Mueller investigation uh, is rigged. He, here's the point that I think we have to all remember. The Russian government, we know, because our intelligence agencies said emphatically and with unanimously that the Russian government tried in every way they could to influence the outcome of our presidential election, to meddle in this, in, in this election, and maybe and probably even throw it to Donald Trump. That's what the intelligence agencies said. 
And yet Republicans are not. Donald Trump has still not condemned the Russian efforts. The Republicans are not focusing on what the Russians did and how, how we retaliate and how we prevent that ever happening again, whether it's Russia or China or anybody else. Instead, the Russians, the Republicans in Congress are all focused on attacking the just our Justice Department and the FBI. It's war on the FBI and war on the Justice Department instead of focusing on the Russians. What the hell is going on? I mean, it is totally out of kilter, totally out of whack, and uh, again, all led by Donald Trump, who's afraid that Mueller is going to come up with something. Uh, well, he's afraid Mueller's going to tell the truth about what really happened. By the because way, the more evidence we see, the more evidence there is of both collusion and obstruction of justice. On the memo, uh, Ted Lieu, Congressman Ted Lieu, put out a tweet yesterday afternoon that says, uh, as a member of the House Judiciary Committee, I read the partisan classified Nunes House Intel memo. I can't talk about it. However, here is an analogy. Remember Geraldo Rivera and the infamous mystery ah. of Al Capone's <laughs> vaults? It's like that, but Geraldo Rivera has more integrity. Oh, good for Ted Lieu. from Ted Lieu. Good for Ted Lieu. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. By the way, um, my prediction is when this memo becomes public, it's going to be like a piece of Swiss cheese. It's going to be yeah. it's going to be so full of holes. It's going to be laughable. It was put out by this clown, written by this clown, Devin Nunez, who has already made an ass of himself. And why Republicans would line up behind him and think this is going to make them look good, uh, I don't get it. But you got to remember it in context. It's all the context is all do anything they can to undermine, pull the rug out from under Robert Mueller before he finishes. Uh, his report. And you know damn well if Donald Trump could do it, he would fire Robert Mueller today again. All of that leading up to tonight's State of the Union. Yes, once again, I had to laugh out loud when I saw on CNN this morning with a headline, Trump will project success as Washington rots. And that really kind of sums it up. And we we know what Donald Trump's going to say tonight because you know what? He kind of gave the same speech last year, and he gave the same speech in Davos. Uh, he's going to say the economy is great, the market is up, uh, everything is good, Americans feel good again, we're the leader of the free world again, uh, people love me, people respect me, we're going to do infrastructure, we're going to do immigration reform, we're going to get it all done. And rah, 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 right? And none, and it is all hogwash. And then, so he's going to, don't expect him to fall on his face tonight. He won't. He's going to read from the teleprompter. He can do this when he, he can do this when John Kelly holds a gun to his head. Well, this was the big thing. I remember, I mean, yeah, I'm glad last you year, watched it. Same thing. I'm glad you watched it because like last year, this yeah. was the first big uh -huh. test. Right. Right. Of can Donald Trump stay on script? And up until that point, up until the State of the Union last year, he had not. He had proven himself not able to do that. Uh, right. In the campaign and in the first month in the White House, which was total chaos, remember? Complete. Right. So the, so the, his speech last year, I, again, I went back to it last night, was February 28, 2017. Here's what they said. Here's how people described 
People described Donald Trump's speech last year statesmanlike, presidential, uplifting, because he stayed on script. He read from the teleprompter. He didn't ad lib. Statesmanlike, presidential, uplifting. And Donald Trump said, it was you where know, we, this was where yeah. we this was where we started this whole meme of this is the night that Donald Trump became okay. president. Exactly. Because there were some people, including yeah. <clears throat> Van Jones, yes. who went out and said, this was the most presidential speech Donald Trump. It's like, yeah. oh, my yeah. God. Yeah, right. Again, and, and, and the next, very next day, he was back to being the same old buffoon. <laughs> right. But at, in that speech last year, he promised... Um, he started what this is, he started out condemning remember condemning these anti-semitic attacks that we'd seen in uh, in Jewish cemeteries and Jewish community centers yeah and then this is a guy that goes on to praise the skinheads and the KKK uh, and the white supremacists oh, uh, good people on both sides and the anti-semites who are marching in Charlottesville um, he promised that we would as soon like within days begin construction of the Great Great Wall, he called it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, still waiting for that. Thank God. He also promised last year, and that he said we will pass an immigration bill that will grant legal status to millions of undocumented immigrants. Yeah, mm-hmm. how far did that go? Um, <laughs> he he also promised last year that his administration was going to promote clean air and clean water. And that was just hours after he had signed an executive order, which gutted the Clean Water Act. And here's my favorite. He promised last year, he said last year in that State of the Union, quote, the time for trivial fights is behind us. Yeah. Thank God we left those behind. Mm-hmm. Ask Andrew McCabe about leaving those behind. Ask Bob Corker. Ask Jeff Flake. Ask LeVar Ball. Ask Diane Feinstein, Chuck Schumer, anybody about leaving trivial fights behind, right? Members of his own party or not. Ask Jeff Sessions about leaving trivial fights behind, right? Uh, <laughs> he also, of course, um, last year he started out, and when he did this, I said, what's he talking about? Uh, it was last year when he said that 94 million Americans, that the country was a mess because 94 million Americans were out of the labor force. Well, somebody checked, and that number includes, it's true, it includes retired people, students, <laughs> and parents who stay at home. That is the Trumpiest thing ever. Yeah. So, yeah, you add them all up, 94 million. Empty Florida, right? And you might get some more people back to work. <laughs> get get those nursing homes, empty them out, put them back to work. But So my point is, though, that... Don't be surprised if Donald Trump, yeah, you know, behaves himself tonight and makes all these empty promises. It is totally, totally meaningless. Just know that going into it. Totally meaningless. He's just pretending. Uh, He's a good actor. He did it on television. Uh, He made his career on television. And that's what tonight is uh, all about. a couple of there's also a, not everybody is going to show up at the State of the Union. I think there are now five Democrats in Congress, uh, including uh, Congressman Ar- Albo Spires. One and only. Albo Spires from New Jersey said, hell no, I'm not going. This president has just about insulted every group I represent in my district. And I don't think that it's proper for me to spend an evening with this president. Mm-mm. 
not proper to spend an evening with this president. Uh, by the way, I've got to say, I, I respect the people who don't go, but um, I'd go. I'll tell you why. You know why I would go? Because if I'm not there, somebody else is going to take my seat. And they're not going to have empty seats, right? And the person going to take my seat is going to be a Trumper. Yep. You know, they'll fill it with a Trumper. And I don't want anybody else on the camera applauding this guy, right? So I'd rather be there sitting on my hands and not applauding, not standing up, than have another Trumper there. Go forth and be grumpy. Go there, sit there, don't clap, scowl, do all that right. stuff. Make sure that the optics of that uh, room yeah. are not you know, 100% that, pro-Trump. I agree with that. Th- that's all. I mean, yeah. I agree so, with that. But I respect the people are not going. I mean, the Congressman Frederica Wilson from Florida is not going. I think Congressman John Lewis is not going. Uh, and we just heard from Albo Spires. But, and, of course, uh, Justice uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg will not be there as well. But she said, uh, she, she herself said the reason... <laughs> <laughs> that she's not going is because last year she was not entirely sober. Yeah, uh, She had had a couple of glasses of wine, and she did fall asleep, and she doesn't want to fall asleep on national television again. I don't blame her. Totally fair. And she has more important things to do. <laughs> exactly. You know? Yeah. Go have some kale and work out. You know? <laughs> uh, right. <laughs> oh, what else? Peter, uh, yes, Tom Brady. Tom Brady. Now, you know, we're – Jamie's not here anymore, so we de- – we're, exactly. We're missing our big Patriot fan. Uh, so, And, Peter, you and I are not great big fans of Tom no, Brady. No, I hate Tom Brady. I hate but, Patriots, of course. But this is one time when you kind of got to be in his quarter. So uh, there's this documentary out there about the Patriots. It's a two-part documentary. And um, this little talk radio show, we shouldn't say little, but the sports talk show in Boston. Brady is on there like once a week. He's their guest. So... Between his last appearance and the most recent appearance, uh, the talk show host had watched this documentary, and here is uh, <clears throat> what one of them has to say about his name uh, is... Alex uh, Reamer. Yeah, Alex Reamer. All right, I thought the first scene was so staged, where Brady's, like, in the kitchen, his kid's being an annoying little pissant. <laughs> oh, 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 come on. <laughs> His daughter was five, I think. Yeah, she's like a little kid. Yeah, yeah. She, I think she's five. She's, she's, she's in the kid. kitchen. I don't know what she was doing. I haven't seen that documentary. But being a little pissant, I mean, come on. So Brady comes on a couple of days ago, uh, and maybe it's just yesterday, and so he makes it clear he ain't happy. You know, I've tried to come on this show for many years with, um, and showed you guys a lot of respect. Um, I've always tried to come on and. You know, do a good job for you guys. So, um, you know, it's very disappointing when you hear that, certainly with my daughter or any child. Um, you know, they certainly don't deserve that. They don't deserve it. Good for you, uh, Tom Brady. Uh, Mr. Reamer is uh, now uh, in, has been suspended by the uh, radio station. By the way, yesterday, uh, Merriam-Webster on Twitter, they tweeted, lookups for the word pissant are up over 115,000%. It is not generally used to insult children. That's what they <laughs> tweeted yesterday. Oh, is that what they tweeted yeah, yesterday? Tweeted. Yeah. Uh, and finally, uh, before we move on, uh, yes, the uh, big news today. We're all celebrating. We're all so grateful. We, we don't have to feel sorry for him any longer. Chris Christie does have a new job. Uh, he, of course, did not get the job as Donald Trump's chief of staff. Uh, he did not get the job of uh, Secretary of State. 
He did not get the job of attorney general. I'm not sure he wanted secretary of state. He did want a chief of staff or attorney general. He uh, lost his job as head of the Donald Trump transition. He didn't get his job on talk radio uh, as a sports commentator. What was the state in, in New York? WFAN. W- the big WFAN. He, he, he auditioned that- there to do a little sports talk. How did that go? He had that call from Mike from Montclair. Mike, Mike in Montclair. What's up, Mike? Governor, next time you want to sit on a beach that is closed <laughs> to the entire world except you, yeah. you put your fat ass in a car and go hey. to one that's open to all your constituents. Well, you know, not just you interesting, and you. Interesting, Mike. You know what? That What's beach, that? that? What's beach, that, Gov? You know, Mike, <laughs> I, love, I love getting calls from communists in Montclair. Communists in Montclair. Montclair. You know, You're a bully, you Governor, are, you know, no, and I don't what? like bullies. You know what? Anyhow, yeah, I guess uh, they didn't want that yeah, on air, huh? Yeah, they didn't like that so much. So uh, Chris Christie now he has landed a job as a contributor to ABC News. What Yikes. are what are they thinking, right? So we're going to see him, I guess, on this week on Sunday morning, pontificating uh, as if, right? He knows anything at all uh, or has anything to offer. Um, Chris Christie has got a new job. The Me Too movement, uh, stronger than ever, as we saw at the uh, Grammys. What's going on? Where do we go from here? Jocelyn Fry from the Center for American Progress joins us next with her take. So stay tuned. Quick break. We'll be right back. Live video, Bill's commentary, the best clips from the show, all in one place. YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Tuesday, January 30. Hello, everybody. Uh, The day for the State of the Union, of course, at 9 o'clock Eastern from the United States Capitol. Uh, The Chamber of the House of Representatives, uh, all members of the House and most members of the House and Senate will be there. Uh, And we can expect to hear from uh, Donald Trump uh, the same old crap that we heard from him from last year. Very positive message about how he's going to unite the country. Uh, and get things done, and he will turn around and do neither. We're coming to you live from our nation's capital, brought to you today by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, those good men and women of the Teamsters Union under President Jim Hoffa. We all live better because of their good work, and uh, we salute them for that good work, thank them for the support of the program, and uh, encourage you to check out their website. You'll be amazed at all the great work that Teamsters are doing across the country. Uh, Check it out at Teamster.org. Well, it started with Harvey Weinstein. It has swept the country since the Me Too movement affecting just about every aspect of American life, from Wall Street to Hollywood to the sports world to the United States Congress and um, maybe even the White House. Jocelyn Fry is a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress who follows the Me Too movement. has been writing about it. Uh, and following it probably before it began. Hi, Jocelyn. Nice to see you. Nice to see you, too. So the big question I have, I'm a little confused. Uh, Watching the SAG Awards where um, to mark the Me Too movement, women all wore black, and then we watched the Grammys and all the women were wearing white. Now, so what is the appropriate color here? Well, I think it varies. Uh, um, and depending I, on the event? Depending on the event, and I think they decide as a group, and, you know, I think they decided white was appropriate for the Grammys. And Have we decided for the Oscars what it's going to be? No. I, I do not know, um, but I'm sure it will be lovely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Remember um, 
I think it was, was it for the State of the Union a year or so ago? Jackie Spear, Congresswoman Jackie Spear was telling us about it. I think Nancy Pelosi and I, to me, it was white that they all decided. They did wear white, wasn't it? Right, white. Right, yeah, right, right. They're going to wear it's a statement. It's was true. That, that was a. Was that before the Me Too movement started? It, it was. It was, and I think tonight they're wearing black, as I understand oh, it. Oh, I see. Um, yeah. I think that's right. And, okay. Uh, you know, I think it's it's an important statement. I think it's yeah. it's symbolic, but I think it shows a level of unity and commitment to the issue. No, uh, absolutely. And I mentioned Wall Street. Hollywood, Congress, but you find out that it's not just the big celebrities, right? Right, right, exactly. Uh, that we should be talking about or where this is a problem. Exactly. I mean, we looked at data from the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission and really analyzed uh, sexual harassment claims over a 10-year period. And what we found is what we we suspected, which is that a lot of the claims um, – you know, first of all, they cut across every industry. They look at 20 industries. Every industry has some sexual harassment. And so the notion that it's only confined to these very high-profile sectors is not accurate. But the the majority or the, the, the largest percentages of claims were really in accommodations and food service and retail trade, uh, manufacturing sectors, industries where there are a lot of low-wage workers. Right. And so kind of blue-collar workers, right? A lot of blue-collar workers and right. a lot of a lot of people who are invisible and don't get on TV. So you're talking about like hotels? Hotels, maids, housekeepers, fast food workers, cashiers in grocery stores and those sorts of folks. And in the manufacturing sector, you know, manufacturing is interesting because um, it's one area that's predominantly male, but it sort of has a wide range of, of jobs from, you know, people on the front lines who are doing like just normal sort of craft work um, to sort of more sophisticated jobs. Now, you mentioned you looked at the claims that have been filed, but the claims that have been filed only tell part of the story. Right. Absolutely. I mean, the other thing we know is that there's significant underreporting of sexual harassment. The EEOC came out with a report um, during the Obama administration in June of 2016, and they cited data that shows as many as 70 percent of claims actually are never reported in a formal way. Seventy percent. Seventy percent. And and it's not that people don't say something maybe to a family member or a colleague, but they they decline to use the formal method of reporting so you could actually track what's happening. Well, is there an opportunity to, I mean, who do they report Two. I mean, uh, you know, let's say, uh, you know, Motel Six right down the street. Somebody right. who's cleaning rooms there at Motel Six. I mean, what is what is her recourse if she is a victim of sexual assault, either by management or by guests at the motel? Well, is, is there? I don't know. I mean, does every city have a? bureau where they can go to or every industry or how does it work? I mean, they have a couple of options. They should have a couple of options. But I think one of the problems is that sometimes these options aren't as good as they should be. I mean, they should be able to go 
to their HR office and complain, and there should be a formal. Yes, but, but my point is, a little, a, you know, a small business is not going to have an HR office. Right, right. A lot of times they may not have it, or even even if they do have it, people may not trust it. People think they're going to be retaliated against. The other option is to go to the EEOC, or there's usually a Fair Employment Practices Agency in your community where you can go and at least ask questions and say, you know, what's happening? This is what's happening. Is this a problem? Um, but a lot of times people really don't know. And particularly if you're talking about um, immigrant workers or people where they're language yeah, barriers, sure. um, people just, uh, you know, oh. particularly in low-wage jobs, they think yeah. that their economic security is at risk. Oh, yeah, and rightfully so. Mm-hmm. And that, that, was one of the, that was one of the things, by the way, you know, we've seen this go across all different uh, em- employment uh, spectrum, but in some of the restaurant stories where we've seen this happen, right, with John Bash in Louisiana, Mario mm-hmm. Batali in New York, John Bash, for example, had created kind of an empire in New Orleans and had a lot of different restaurants. And it turns out there were women who felt like they were being sexually harassed and there was no HR department. They mm-hmm. had no, no HR, yeah. like nothing. And that's not uncommon. No, no. Which kind of shocked me. That, so no HR department. That's, I'm, I'm not surprised, but also... The idea that some of these people, particularly people, as you say, who have maybe immigrants, they have some language barrier or something, that they're going to go seek out, even have the the knowledge that that uh, such an agency might exist, the EEOC, right? Right. That they're going to seek it out and they're going to actually go there. Right. Right. That never happened. It's I mean, hard. So seldom happened. It, it, yeah. it it's hard. Um, um, they really have no no recourse. It's very difficult, and it's it's one of the problems that we have. Um, and if you look at the research, it's why um, uh, there a lot of times as many as seventy five percent of uh, folks who have sexual harassment claims fear retaliation. So and and so because of that, that's the other reason they don't complain. Um, so it's a difficult situation, and we wanted to put that issue on the table rather than just focusing on famous people. Right. So um, is it too soon to know whether the frequency of claims has gone up as a result of all the publicity surrounding Harvey Weinstein and Bill O'Reilly and Roger Ailes and go go through the list? Right. I think it is too soon, at least from a a formal EEOC standpoint. Um, um, You'd probably see some sort of jump next year or something like that. There has to be. I would would think think so. Given all the publicity. I would think so. I mean, I think that's been one of the the striking things about this is that it's really touched a nerve. And a lot of folks have been able to talk about their own personal experiences and connect to what the broader public conversation is about. Perhaps the most stunning, most disgusting of all is this Larry Nasser, right? Was that wasn't his name? The mm-hmm. sports doctor, mm-hmm. the gymnast sports doctor out at the university. I mean, Michigan State University. Over 150 young women, girls, mm-hmm. many of them, came forward, and this has been going on for 20 years. I mean, it's, it's just the most vulnerable, right? Of of, of our population, if you will. And and he got away with it. He got away with it for so long. And there were complaints. How could that happen in a you know, in a milieu like that? The university. It's know? it's shocking, um, but I think it's revealing in that, you know, I often say to people that sexual harassment, people get focused on the sex part, but it's really about power. 
and it's about people misusing power and exerting power over people who they they know are vulnerable or who are less likely to question their authority. And I think that happens in a variety of settings, and it happens. I mean, here. doctor is one profession where yeah. people feel, well, you know, he's got a doctor. He's a doctor. He's got a right to touch my body anywhere he wants, right? Right, right. A doctor, these are very young girls, you know, in a, in a you know, a very competitive um, uh, sport. They're often away from their families. Um, you know, they're literally putting their lives in the hands of these doctors and coaches who are supposed to be around them, helping them and protecting them. And so I think it's um, it's an incredibly vulnerable situation. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things that we found and seen around sexual harassment and sexual assault, what's striking is that it cuts across every industry and it cuts across jobs and situations at every level the you know whether you're talking about young girls and this this you know horrific situation with the doctor or you're talking about high profile you know women in media who theoretically have every resource and you would think wouldn't be intimidated or bothered by anything and it I think it speaks to the power and impact of harassment and also how they believe that they're going to be perceived if mm-hmm. they if they raise it. And I think, you know, as we think about change, that's where we have to start focusing. What is it that we need to change so that if somebody comes forward, they're not, you know, rejected or told that can't possibly be true or it must be your fault. You were wearing something you let him on or whatever it is. But also, um, what can we do about changing the attitude among men that – you know, just because you're a man, that doesn't give you power or authority to treat women that way or, or to see women as basically your plaything right. just because they happen to work with you or for you. Right. I think there's um, a lot of educating to do on all fronts. Um, I think it's certainly it doesn't start in the workplace. It, I think it starts much younger um, when you think look at these issues around sexual assault in you know, ele- uh, even as young as elementary school, but certainly high school and college, um, we need to be able to have frank conversations about healthy relationships. And, um, you know, I think a lot of times young people have questions and they don't feel comfortable raising them. Um, they may be in relationships and they think something is wrong, but they don't really know and they're uncomfortable with saying something about it. So I, you know, I think. Um, we have a lot of opportunity to really educate folks about what's proper behavior. And we have to encourage and empower everybody to say, this is not right. I mean, if you think about some of these stories, a lot of times people knew. They will say, yeah, I saw that. It was sort of Mm -hmm. crazy, but I didn't want to get involved, both men and women. So I think part of the empowering of men is not simply to act better, but also if you see something, say something about it. Right. There's also there was an interesting conversation we had a couple of weeks ago with a woman who who taught classes to sort of like try and re-educate men on, you know, how to behave. <laughs> and one of the things she said is like men know this stuff. They do. I mean, like there's been a obviously uh, society has allowed certain things to happen, but like if you tell a man not to rape a woman, they know that. It's just putting it into practice that's been accepted for so long. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, a big part of this. Right. I think you're so, right. I agree. And I, I think, um, you know, it's important to distinguish 
you know, between what is sort of healthy behavior and relationships between men and women and what is completely out of bounds, right? Like it's not, it's like the conversation about locker room talk, right? Like there's some talk that actually really isn't locker room talk. You know, rape is not really something that should be happening, period, the end. Women know that, men know that. And I think it's it's important not to normalize behavior that we know is not really normal. Um, and men have a role in saying that too. Yeah, look, I've been in a lot of locker rooms in my day. Uh, All right, mm-hmm. the, the stuff that Donald Trump said on tape yeah, that no, he dismissed no. his locker room talk yeah. is not locker not room locker talk. Room talk. Sorry. No. I mean, right. look, there's some things that happen in locker rooms that get said in locker rooms yeah. that you would not want out in public. That ain't one of them. Mm-hmm. Right. Jocelyn Fry's with us from the Center for American Progress, AmericanProgress.org. Um, how bad is it in Congress? Um, well, that's a good question. I mean, I think uh, what we're seeing is that it's— um, Particularly for women staffers I'm talking it's about. Not, right? It's not great. Um, I think we don't yet really know what the magnitude is, but I think what these cases have revealed is that there is a workplace culture— that has allowed you know bad behavior to persist, and they need to do better. In and- a sense, it's got to, you know, have a perfect storm in Congress for this, right? I mean, you've got these men in power who feel their power, uh, for the most part, who are young, who are here, who are away from their families, and they're surrounded, or they're on a pedestal, right? And they're surrounded by people who worship them or at least feel loyalty to them or maybe feel afraid of them. And there you go, right? I think that's, you know, that's that's certainly part of it. I mean, I, I think that one of the things we have to focus on is that there are also, um, it's not just about the individual people, it's also about the structural barriers. Exactly. Um, within Congress that allows um, basically people to exert their power um, with limited control. Right. So the real focus, I think, the, the, of, of efforts in Congress is not just to expose more wrongdoing, but to fix the system. I've talked to, to extensively with Congresswoman Jackie Speier uh, about that, who's the leader in the House, as is Senator Gillibrand in the Senate. Um, so what, you know, is there any progress there, and what can they do, what should they do? Um, I think they're making progress. I mean, I think that there are committed m- members of Congress on you know both sides of the aisle who are working hard. Um, I do think it, it it has to get beyond the politics and individual people and to look at how their system is operating as a whole. And I think their you know their initial take on limiting uh, the ability to keep things confidential, um, to create greater transparency, to do better training. Um, maybe even things like doing regular climate surveys, because sometimes training doesn't tell you everything, um, to make sure that people, um, the the reporting mechanisms are more solid, that people can actually go and, and, and raise complaints confidentially. Like, I think all of those things are important just to make the process work better. Um, and I think they have a ways to go, um, but um, it's an important first step. Right. And I think people are looking to see that some action is taken in the cases where it's proven that there there was wrongdoing. Uh, And also that the process not take years and years and years, right? There'd be some swift resolution of these. And that would give people confidence, more women or men, confidence to come forward 
with these complaints when things happen. Right. Absolutely. I think people, um, you know, actions speak louder than words, right? So if they see the process changing, they see people being able to come forward, that they're not retaliated against, they don't, you know, get fired or um, demoted, and that there is a process that works effectively, then I think it will encourage more people to come forward. Right. Now, um, the risk with any movement, of course, is um, that the pendulum could swing too far. Uh, I saw an article yesterday, I forget where it was, where um, some just average people were talking about this. One woman who mentors a, a high school student, um, and, and she said she's just decided, you know, she's been doing this for some time. She's not going to hug him anymore when he comes in, you know, that, that she, she's afraid you know, that that might be taken the wrong way. So she shakes his hand now, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you could see where this could go. What can we do about that, or is that just something we have to learn to live with? I mean, can it go too far? Um, I, I think it it could, but I don't think we're there yet. I, I think what's important is that we are clear about distinguishing, you know, conduct that is improper and violates the law as opposed to conduct that's, you know, thoughtless, it shouldn't have happened, but it's sort of a different type of, different level of conduct. And I think one of the challenges that we've had is in this moment where there's been a lot of enthusiasm and a lot of energy, we've conflated a whole bunch of things, right? Right. Like not not every bad situation, not every clumsy pass violates the law. It's, you know, it's inappropriate, it's uncomfortable, but it may not be a violation of the law. And and, and so it's important that we are clear about those things. All right. Here's the test. Yes. Roger Ailes, yes. Bill O'Reilly, yes. Charlie Rose, yes. Harvey Weinstein, yes. I could go down the list, right? Al Franken? Well, I think, um, you know, his case was a difficult case. And, you know, what I'd say about it is a couple things. First of all, I think we don't necessarily have all the facts. We know some of the facts. I think the most difficult aspects of his case are about process. You know, I think... Um, that um, it's important to have due process. Um, But I think the other dynamic is that, you know, particularly when you're a member of Congress, you are at times held to a a higher standard. And a higher standard may be something different than what would legally actually, you know, happen in terms of a court case. But but if you look at the difference, you know, the Republicans didn't say Blake Farenthold has to get out. They didn't say this Patrick Meehan has to get out right now. They haven't said that Donald Trump has to get out. But particularly Senator Gillibrand said Al Franken must go, even though Franken had said, I don't, I'm, I'm sorry. He didn't deny it. He said, I did it. I didn't mean it, but I did it. I'm sorry. Yes, Senate investigation, yes, I'll abide but what, by whatever that ethics committee says. I mean, he was about as upfront as he could be, and Democrats said, nope, too damn bad. Out of here. Right. Yeah. You that, know, that is a double standard, isn't it's, it? It's a tough standard. And, I, you know, what I've said to folks is that, um, you know, there are a whole set of reasons why Congress may decide to hold themselves to different standards. However, you know, when as I focus on this issue— I try to focus less on that scenario and the vast majority of other places where it's happening, right? Like at the end of the day, you know, most people are not going to be in the Congress situation. And m- most yeah. and you cannot and you cannot simply fire everybody 
in order to rid your workplace of sexual harassment. So I, I feel like we have to get ultimately out of the political context and think through what's actually going to make sense for most workers. Um, you know, I, I, I and do you, you do you see? I mean, it seems to me that there is real progress being made at the city level, the state level, even at the federal, that, that, that people do see this now as, uh, as a real issue and a real problem they've got to deal with. I think that that's right. But the, it, the test is really, now what are we going to do about it? Yeah. And, and whether or not we're going to identify reforms that actually will be effective for, as you said, that low-wage worker. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, what are we going to do about that person who's not going to be on TV? That's the vast universe that nobody is talking about. Absolutely. Yeah, and Absolutely. which you have exposed and, and brought attention to. So uh, good for you. And well, thank you. Taking this to the next level, the next step. Let's hope uh, so. Again, all the good work, as, as much as part of the great work that the Center for American Progress does every day on so many issues. Um, you can check it out again at AmericanProgress.org. Thanks so much for coming in, Joyce Thank you. We continue with Chris Liu from uh, the Miller Center. This is the Bill Press Show. Hey, everybody. This is Bill Press. Thanks for listening to the Bill Press and Friends podcast. And now, do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do. Just search for the Bill Press Show. Then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go. And you'll get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing. If you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by telling a friend, writing a review, and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Yes, indeed. Uh, miracles do happen, folks. Chris Christie finally got a job. <laughs> he got a new job. Uh, he's going to be a commentator, a contributor to ABC News. Yep, there goes the network. <laughs> Hello, everybody. On a Tuesday, January 30, what do you say? Great to see you today. Thanks for uh, swinging by, and hope you'll stay around here for this uh, second hour together on the Bill Press Show as we uh, take a look at all the big stories of the day, bring you the news wherever it's happening here in Washington, D.C. That's where we start out, uh, around the country and around the globe. Uh, boom it out to you, and then uh, look forward to hearing from you and your comments on the news of the day. You know how to do so. Give us a holler at uh, on YouTube at YouTube. No, on, I'm sorry. On Twitter, at BP Show. You got it. We're on so many platforms. You know, you We're everywhere. Go, you got to get them mixed up every once on Twitter, uh, at BP Show. Uh, with the State of the Union uh, coming tonight and Republicans yesterday releasing, uh, well, sending it to the White House for public release, uh, a memo written by Devin Nunez, congressman from California, that he says proves that the FBI and the D and the Department of Justice are just out to get Donald Trump. This whole Russian investigation, they say, is politically motivated. Chris Liu is a former Deputy Secretary of Labor, now with the uh, great Miller Center at the University of Virginia, joining us in studio to help us through the news of the day. Hi, Chris. It's great to be here. Good to see you again. Always. 
Big day today. If you have, you have your seat tonight for the State of the Union. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I might be sitting this one out. <laughs> me too. <laughs> yeah, I'm part of that me too movement. That's right. Right. All right. So we jump right into it with you and uh, and Chris and uh, all the rest of the world. But first. This is the Full Court Press. Just a couple of other stories making news. Well, we are going to be talking about the State of the Union here. Here's one thing you will see tonight if you watch. According to a fundraising email sent out by the Trump administration yesterday, they were offering people who pay at least $35 for the Trump re-election campaign the chance to see their name streamed on television dur- during the address. How? This is not a joke. You mean under like a... On like a chiron. Like a crawl? This is going to be through the campaign website. So oh, if you watch yeah, it online, yeah, right. all the names will that you... Uh, uh, if you've contributed $35 or more, God. your name will show up on the broadcast. <laughs> Which I, honest to God, this rarely happens anymore. I saw this and I thought it was an Onion article. And oh. it was absolutely true. Donald Trump is giving you the opportunity to have your name flashed during the State of the Union if you give him money. Well, by the way, we all wonder what the State of the Union is. Not me. I wonder what the State of the Union is. That's right. That's uh, right. Yes. As we know, the House of Representatives, oops, they printed out the tickets. State of the Union, U-N-I-O-M. Yeah. And they're saying they're going to have to reprint UN. and reissue <laughs> all of those tickets. They're going to have to give all those tickets back out. You know, if you got one of those, that'd be a collector's item. Oh, absolutely. You could sell that baby on your oh, eBay. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, we talked a lot about all the travel that Michelle Obama did when they were when she was uh, first lady. Well, according to a new report in the Wall Street Journal, Melania Trump spent $675,000 on flights during her first three months that Donald Trump was in office. Now, you remember that she did not live in the White House. Where'd she go? I thought she was at Trump Tower. She lived in Trump Tower, and then she flew a a bunch of different places, but also came to D.C. often because they were looking at schools and And all that stuff. And she wasn't taking the uh, shuttle. No, no. The Delta shuttle. No, 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 no. no. Nor was she taking Amtrak. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's just not how they roll. $675,000 $675,000 in just three months is what it cost for uh, Melania. Which... Oh, by the way, breaking news, the First Lady is going to attend the State of the Union. Oh, yeah? Mm-hmm. I saw that the, the whole family will be there, but except for Barron. Except for Barron. Barron won't be there. Oh, he has school tomorrow. Hey, it's a school night. Right, right. But, you know, she did not go to Davos. She went to Mar-a-Lago to the spa instead. This is the Bill Press Show. Yes, indeed. The State of the Union. It is tonight. Donald Trump is going, well, here's what the uh, the CNN headline is, uh, which I thought uh, summed it up best. Donald Trump to project success while Washington rots. Yeah, (laughs) you're going to see the, uh, the contrast between how good Donald Trump thinks things are and how bad things really are. That's tonight's State of the Union. Hello, everybody. Great to see you. Welcome to the Bill Press Show on this Tuesday, January 30. We're coming to you live from Washington, D.C., and our studio on Capitol Hill, just about six blocks up the street from the United States Capitol building, uh, where all the attention will be focused tonight. 
Um, and we're coming to you live online on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Joining you on the great WCPT, the progressive voice of Chicago, and uh, on television as well on Free Speech TV, Coast to Coast. Thanks for joining us. Remember, uh, we want to hear from you and your comments on Twitter uh, at BP Show. Chris Liu is a former Deputy Secretary of Labor, a good friend of the program, now with the Miller Center at the University of Virginia in studio with us. Again, Chris, good to see you. It's great being here. Thank you. Uh, We've been at it for about an hour now, uh, talking about the news of the day, particularly the State of the Union, generating a few comments on Twitter here. Peter, bring us up to date. We're on Twitter at BP Show, at BP Show. Uh, A couple of people have made the comment that Uh you were saying that the Democrats aren't going to be going. Yes, yes. Uh, A couple of people made the comment that the Democrats should go so that they could have a moment where they scream out, you lie, (laughs) just like Joe Wilson did. (laughs) To Barack Obama, but I don't think that the Democrats are going to do that. The Democrats would not do that. We're too polite. Yeah, exactly. Uh, M. Zadi also on Twitter says, everyone will hail 45 as presidential if he doesn't poop his pants. I wonder if it will be another sniff-a-thon as well. Oh, Yeah, remember he's got that issue. Uh, And Kurt Herner says, "If I love this comment, if Democrats really wanted to get Trump's dander up, they should all take a knee tonight during the state oh, of the and watch oh. him lose his mind. Oh. Uh, there's nothing <laughs> wrong with silent and peaceful protest. Also, remember, we are on YouTube, youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show, youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. We take comments there as well. Uh, Dewey says, who wants to listen to propaganda written by a speechwriter for the Coke Network anyway? <laughs> Good comment. Good points. Reach out to us on Twitter at BP Show or on the chat room, youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. I always like to listen to to, to have you read the uh, Twitter comments because uh, it's nice to know there are some people who are meaner than I am. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, Chris, you've been part of the you're part of the Obama administration. Some people don't realize what goes into the making of a state of the union. Right? Yeah, it's really an incredible process. So before I was the deputy secretary of labor, I served in the White House for as the White House cabinet secretary. So I was corralling all the agencies. It, it is a process. Now, the process we ran is one that went months. You know, uh, probably in November, December, we'd start thinking about the themes that we want to talk about in the speech. These might think, be things that came out of it, whether it's inauguration speech or what we're going to highlight in the um, upcoming uh, whether it's midterm elections, re-election campaign. And so we kind of f- figure out what those themes are, and then there's a call that goes out to the agencies. Hey, give us all the policies that you have that kind of fit within these uh, buckets. And then there's this exhaustive process that goes through December and early January to kind of winnow down these ideas, see what makes the cut, what doesn't make the cut. Uh, the problem, as you can imagine, is that what you end up with is a kind of a laundry list of policies and. We had some remarkable speechwriters that figured out a way to stitch all of this together so it didn't look like just a Christmas tree. And then you kind of look at it, then you sort of figure out, like, all right, did we properly uh, check all the boxes? Did we make sure we talked about veterans? Did we talk about farmers? Because if you don't do that, somebody notices. Um, and then Did you talk about the environment? You talk about the environment. Did you, you know, co- co- uh, cover all the different uh, constituent groups uh, within the Democratic Party, all the different people in the country? Um, and then you end up with a, a, a really – it is a laundry list of policy. And then you try to figure out how do you personalize this. And, you know, President Obama received 10 letters a day. So we'd kind of figure out, like, were there any letters that he got that particularly touched him? Uh, you look for opportunities of people he's met 
uh, during his travels. And then you figure out, okay, hey, do we put these people in the first lady's box? Uh, and then, you know, you have a pretty good draft of a speech, and then you have to fact check it. And it's something we took seriously, which is the truth. We didn't. Uh, uh, oh, God. How unusual. <laughs> <laughs> no, this was not a Donald Trump five or six false claims a day kind of uh, thing that we were going for. Um, and then in the end, uh, we have a draft of the speech. One of my fun jobs as the or not fun jobs as the White House cabinet secretary is I had to pick who the designated survivor was. Oh, uh, so, I, you know, and it's if I ever have a book, I'll sort of talk more about the whole process or who got picked for what reason. But essentially, you look at the speech and you realize that, you know, when veterans gets mentioned, they're going to flash to the secretary of veterans affairs. And you sort of look at the speech and figure out, all right, who doesn't get mentioned in the speech uh, or who's otherwise who on would track. not be missed, who would not be missed. And I was very big on, you know, there's always people talk about the first tier cabinet, the second tier cabinet. I was always very big on not having just the HUD secretary sit out, in part because Sean Donovan was a friend of mine, and I liked Sean, uh, but also because I thought it should be spread around. So the very first um, address that uh, President Obama gave, the joint address he gave in 2009, I believe I picked the attorney general to sit out, uh, because at that point- Eric Holder? Yeah, I believe at that point, we were the speech was going to largely focus on the economy. Uh, We were in the middle of the recession, and so um, he sat it out. And I think that set in a very important precedent that anybody could be asked to sit out the speech. Um, And so once you get to the day of the speech, it's kind of fact-checking the speech. Well, I'm fascinated Uh, by this. I just have to jump in. (laughs) So what if Eric Holder said, hell no, I want to go? Yeah, that actually happened. Um, Not with with Eric Holder, who was a good guy. But look, I mean, one of the the (laughs) interesting things I had was— So who's the asshole? Well, I'm not going to tell you the asshole, but I will tell you. All right, well, let me, let me say it this way, Bill. For the first two years, I worked for Rahm Emanuel. And so when I would make the call to a cabinet member, they knew that if they said no to me, the next call would probably come from Rahm Emanuel. Oh, I see. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, right. You know, look, and, and when you when you evenly distributed, everyone understood this was their, um, you know, this is just one of the things you have to do, and you get sent off to a bunker. And, and frankly, for some cabinet members, you probably they, get— They don't stay at home. They have they to go not, to the bunker? You have to, say, you have to go to the bunker, or you have to be in a secure location. We actually had occasions where we had cabinet members who were on international travel. They have to be in a location where they can be secured uh, in case um, they're, they're needed. And frankly, in some ways, they get more pressed by sitting it out because everyone always mentions who's the person that sits it out. Right. The bunker under the White House? Um, there is a bunker, but I'm, I, you know, I, I, <laughs> I won't say where the bunker is. Uh, okay. Um, so you are going to tell us who is a guy that, or he or she who. Re- let me say that. Let me say this. There were people who, um, I enticed with other things in, in order to sit out the speech. Hmm. <laughs> I see. Okay, you had to give them. Yeah, mm, very fascinating. All right. Uh, so so then, now, we, then we get to the day of the speech. The day of the speech, yeah. And but, um, you but know, this process. I mean, my only little uh, window that this was the state of the state speech right. when I was working for Governor Jerry Brown in California, and I remember, and you know, I was one of those in in his office, you know, and collecting ideas, and all the departments and all the cabinet secretaries just sent in their laundry list of stuff, right? Yeah. It's hard to sort through all of that stuff. Yeah, you know, and I saw that from the White House perspective when I was getting the incoming, that I saw this the labor timer when I was throwing my stuff in as well, saying, hey, how come you don't include our stuff? And so it is, it's a, it's a, 
it's a tough process to go through so these. So the day of the speech? Well, we get to the day of the speech. We have uh, we obviously have a draft. We're fact-checking, and I'll go back to the agencies, and they'll say, hey, here's the policy that made it in. Here's that didn't. Uh, there are always last-minute changes. Bill Daly in 2011, you know, shortly after coming in, um, added a line that became very famous at the time. He sort of talked about, we were talking about government reorganization. And he talked about how one agency manages salmon when it's in freshwater. Another agency manages salmon when it's in the oceans, uh, which was sort of a misstatement, actually. But he thought it was sort of a clever line based on his time as the Commerce Secretary. Uh, he wanted yeah. to put in, so then we had to sort of scramble to make sure that was correct. And then you do a series of briefings for groups to sort of talk to them about the themes. Right. Uh, and then you sort of figure out at that point, hey, how do we deploy the president, vice president, cabinet uh, to do the amplification afterwards? So this is a process that goes several months. Uh, the speech is really just kind of the culmination of a long process and, frankly, the beginning of a long amplification process. All right. So how much um, rehearsal did uh, Barack Obama do before he came up to the uh, to the uh uh, 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 that's my question, but I want to come back just to make a quick comment. Th you talked about the laundry list. Yeah. And and I think you correctly said the key is to make it not sound like a laundry list. Right. Bill Clinton was not good <laughs> at that. I mean, I just remember sitting there. I mean, it was it, it, there'd be a list of 50 things, and he would just go through them all. So, But Obama did, you, you guys did a much better job, I think, of making it thematic and then getting your policies into the theme. And you just can't mention them all, right? But You can't so, mention them all. And you also have but, to balance what goes by legislation, what goes by regulation, yeah. what is bipartisan, what's not partisan uh, or not and, bipartisan. And, and as a, for years now, having been on the commentary side of presidential um, State of the Unions, or State of the Union speeches since my when I started in television in Los Angeles, sitting on the set there at KABC, um, one of the things you always mentioned was what he didn't talk about. So that sometimes becomes a big story, too. Oh, my God. You know, like he didn't talk about the environment or he didn't talk about the war in Iraq. Right. Or whatever. Right? Well, and now you are have always looking for that. Yeah. People now do these instant word clouds where they figure out what word was mentioned more often than others and what wasn't mentioned at all. So you're entirely right. Right. Uh, OK. So um, how many rehearsals? I would say President Obama, you know, well, obviously was a gifted order. He didn't need to do that many. And I think the other challenge with doing— But he certainly wasn't reading it for the first No, he time. certainly was not. I think the challenge, as you know, Bill, is that the State of the Union speech is a pretty long speech. I mean, even if you leave out the yes. applause lines, this thing easily runs half hour, 40 minutes. Um, trying to block out that amount of time for prep and rehearsal, I mean, that could chew up your day. Right, yeah. But w w so would he go to the White House Theater? Is that my? Yeah, they would have it set up in certain ways. I mean, I you know I think yeah. it, it is. Um, I, I think early on for most people, not being used to tell used to teleprompters, I think you have to sit and rehearse that. I think after a while, President Obama was very good and kind of. Plus, the other thing was is he played such an active role in the writing of the speech. It wasn't like he was reading other people's remarks. He also had, as I said, gifted speechwriters who could write in his own voice, and so. Um, I suspect he didn't do that many rehearsals by the yeah, end. Yeah, and he was very involved. He actually was. They always say a president is. He actually was involved in the crafting of the speech because he's such a good writer. As you yeah, absolutely. Out, right? I mean, you, you in Pete Souza's book, he shows photos of uh, drafts of speeches that have the president's uh, handwriting all over it. Right. Now, how much practice pardon me, do you think Donald Trump is giving his speech? <laughs> I mean, the idea that you would get him away for a half an hour to read from a teleprompter? 
Well, it's also very funny. I mean, you know, if coming from a person who criticize other people's use of teleprompters. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. He, he, he is actually a remarkably bad teleprompter reader. And to your <laughs> listeners and viewers today, I mean, watch the way he literally goes from one teleprompter to another teleprompter to another teleprompter. He, he doesn't do it in that kind of seamless way. Yeah. Uh, so he yeah. hasn't even perfected that art yet. Right. No, he does. You can see him move from one to the other, right, like that. And how much of the... Um, Drafting of the speech, do you think Donald Trump was? Oh, involved I suspect in? not at all. I mean, there are days where you, you he's reading these speeches. It's almost as if he's pronouncing these words for the very first time. <laughs> and that's what we'll see tonight. So, in terms of policy, um, what do you expect tonight? You know, look, uh, by all accounts, or theme, right? Or by all accounts, message. you know, they 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 have previewed that it will be a bipartisan speech. It will be forward looking. Uh, you know, obviously, he wants to lay out his vision for immigration. He wants to talk about infrastructure. Uh, those are the easy things. I think the challenge for Donald Trump um, is that he's done everything but govern in a bipartisan way over the last year. And so now to strike a theme of bipartisanship pretty much rings hollow at this point. Uh, also, in this kind of day and age where, you know, he's tweeting 10 times a day, uh, you know, it's a little anticlimactic to, to hear him get up there and say something because. It, it probably contradicts everything he's tweeted that morning, and it will be contradicted by whatever he tweets the next day. Um, and so uh, there was a point at which State of the Union had a power. Uh, it probably has a lot less now. Um, the audience is just not what it used to be. Um, it, it's a speech. It will lay out some policy visions. But obviously, given that we are in a midterm election year, given how divided Congress is, I think most of the policy prescriptions in there will be disregarded pretty quickly. Well, I was going to ask you that. I mean— so here we are again. I mean, this is a big pageant, Washington pageant, right? All this tra-la-la. And, I mean, look at, the, look at the monitors up here. All the morning shows are here in town, right, um, broadcasting from Washington. All the shows at CNN today are going to be you know, coming out of Washington. There, for the last two days, it's been all building up to what he might say, what can we expect. For the next two days, it's going to be what he did or he didn't say. I mean, and when it, when you come, and you know, we live here on the hill, so you know the helicopters start around an hour before the speech. You know, you cannot drive anywhere near Capitol Hill. I mean, it's it's just it's over the top. But when you come right down to it, what does it all mean? Not much, right? No, certainly not in this day and age. Not much. You know, when President Wilson was the first president to give the State of the Union. It was a remarkable thing that the president actually delivered first it in person. First one in person since in, I think Adams or something. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, I, I read the article. There was an article in the Post about it. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was a big deal. <laughs> yeah. And, and back in the day and age when, bef well before social media, when you know FDR would do a fireside chat by radio, and that was considered a, a momentous must, you know, a listen to event. It was a big deal when the president spoke. When when the president speaks every single day by Twitter, it becomes a much less important event. Um, you know, and, and obviously, given that this president has a much smaller role in the actual policymaking process than previous presidents. I mean, if we get an immigration yeah. deal done, if we get a long-term budget deal done, it's going to be because Donald Trump sat on the sidelines, not because he was involved in the process. Well, we saw that with, uh, with, with this uh, last last week, right? The, the only way they got an agreement Absolutely. to keep the government shut down the, as small as it was, short as it was, was 
Donald Trump went into hiding over yeah. the weekend. He was in the bunker, probably. He was in the bunker. Um, I was just checking my phone. I do not have a tweet from Donald <laughs> Trump this morning. So my He's God. actually been a little quiet the last couple of days. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> Other people are doing this dirty work for him, uh, I guess. Um, I'll tell you, the other thing about the State of the Union where I think, in a sense, television has ruined it, um, like it's ruined a lot of stuff. But I am up to here, sick of the guests in the presidential box. Yeah. And, by the way, I'm, I'm across the board, Democrats and Republicans, you know, they do this. It's almost like, I know you don't like me, but how can you not like these people that I brought in? And they bring in people who are going to reinforce, like the president tonight is going to have two families of two young women, I think, who were killed by MS-13 MS gang members. Okay, Not to mention all the other families of all the people who were killed by whatever. Yeah. You know, the in, Las Vegas shooting. I mean, The I, Las yeah. Vegas shooting. How about having them there? That would no, fill no. the entire uh, 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 visit gallery. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, it's just a way of um, – and, and, and they spend, you know, 10 minutes of their speech talking about the people who are in the box uh, – I think Ronald Reagan was the first one who did it with Lenny Skolnick. Is that Skolnick. right? It, yes. He was the he was Good the person you. that jumped in and saved the people Lenny, in the Air maybe Florida. Lenny Skolnick. Yeah. yeah, yeah, right. Jumped off the 14th Street Bridge, <laughs> saved the people from Air Florida. Right. Uh, and since then, it's you know, it, to me, it's like the White House Correspondents' Dinner. They ruined it when they started bringing right. guests. Like <laughs> Fawn Hall was the first one, right? And 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 now that's what that dinner is all about. Now the State of the Union is every time I turn around, they're talking about who's going to be in the president's box. Right. right. Yeah. yeah. No, I look and 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 you know your previous guest Jocelyn Fry, who worked for uh, Mrs. Obama, can talk to you about you know the logistics of how you know getting all these people there, which is and it's expensive and it is. It, look, a couple people's fine. It has gotten a little out of control. Right. So back to um, I uh, just curious thought I remembered. Um, that the president was sort of on his good behavior last year in his first speech to a joint session of Congress. So, you know, I went back kind of and checked it out. And what we saw last year, it was February 28th, not a State of the Union because he had, right. had just been sworn in. Uh, and the commentary afterwards, they, they referred to the speech as um, most statesmanlike, presidential, uplifting. People said, tonight's the night that Donald Trump became presidential. You know, because he stayed on script, he read the teleprompter, and he gave a message, uplifting message of hope, uniting the country, we're going to get all these things done, we're all together. He actually said, quote, unquote, the time for trivial fights is behind us. I mean, <laughs> and we're going to hear that same pap tonight, right? No, and I would I would advise your, uh, your, your viewers so, uh, to do what I'm going to do, which is I will— uh, when the trans when the uh, the speech is released, I will read the, the 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 text, and then I will watch the commentary. You know, later in the evening or tomorrow morning, because I, I think it's really a lot about nothing. And we have seen this play out so many times. I mean, I remember um, after no. the the tragic shooting of Steve Scalise. You know, uh, uh, Trump did these remarks in the White House that everyone again said was very presidential. He was kind of rising above it. Next day, you know, does something else silly, and so we've we've gone through the song and dance way too many times. Yeah. I mean, they have proven they did it at that first speech last year, February 28th, uh, at Davos, and there might have been another another occasion, I forget where, they convinced Donald Trump, you got to behave, right? You can't go off crazy. This is not a campaign yeah. rally. 
You just just read the speech, no ad libs, as boring as it is, and he can be really boring when he does that. Uh, and then, but but then everybody will say, you know, what a wonderful positive message it is. But then the next morning, he'll be back attacking people, tweeting, you know, doing saying crazy stuff and upending the whole news cycle. Yeah, uh, we we will probably see the release of the Nunes memo in the next couple of days. He'll be continuing his attacks on McCabe tomorrow. So. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. It, uh, we ought to really ignore this speech. It's really not uh, worth the coverage it's getting. <laughs> having well, said, you know, it's, all, it's, having it's, said all that, let's ignore the speech. Yeah, we really should. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that at all. And I think that, you know, I, I had a conversation with one of my kids yesterday, right? Why do we even have the State of the Union? I said, like, look, this is a moment for the president to go on record to talk about either their accomplishments or what they're looking forward to in the coming year or years and to sort of – state very clearly where they stand on these things and then i thought about it afterwards i was like no it's not not anymore it's not like he could go up there and say anything he wants and then do the exact opposite like you said the time for petty fights is behind us and plus if you think about 2007 all the moments after the that after those words fell out of his mouth like all i can think about are petty fights and arguments the, so it doesn't New, mean the, anything. The New York Times yesterday had two full pages of petty tweets by Donald Trump since he's been president. Two full pages in the New York Times. Those are the petty petty fights. Uh, but I, yeah, you, I would I would suggest your readers would be better off re- spending their time tonight reading those two pages, yeah. those two full pages, because that's a better yeah. representation of who Donald Trump is than what he's going to do tonight. Uh, well said. Um, you mentioned something I'd have to ask you about, which is this GOP memo. Yeah. So. Um, we haven't seen it yet, um, but it was released yesterday by by the House Intelligence Committee, Republicans. Uh, they refused to release the Democratic rebuttal to this memo. This memo written by Devin Nunez, who's already disgraced and has zero credibility, I believe. So Donald Trump has five days to review it. The Justice Department and the FBI said, please do not release this until we have a chance to review it. They will not get that chance. There's, there's no doubt in your mind that Donald Trump will release it. I believe he will release it. Okay. And, and so, I, what does it say? Do we, what do you think it says, or what is it all about? What is the memo about? Yeah. Well, look. I think, according to press accounts, I think the memo will lay out what they believe is a one-sided case that was made to the FISA court uh, in its uh, in in the application to do surveillance on Carter Page. I think the challenge is in a four-page memo that's a one-sided summary that doesn't include the underlying intelligence. Um, I think it's going to obviously give a false impression that there is some kind of um, uh, conspiracy conspiracy within the FBI, this deep state idea against Donald Trump. Uh, you know, and I, I, I think it's both going to com- it both could compromise uh, sources and methods, which is why the Justice Department is uh, so concerned about this. Uh, but I think certainly at that point, I think it's up to the House Democrats basically just to release their memo and say, you know what, screw it. We don't care that the committee hasn't voted ours out. We're just going to give it out. Who cares at this uh, point now? And I haven't read either one, okay? Right. But you give me four pages written by Devin Nunez and 10 pages written by Adam Schiff, there's no doubt which one I'm going to believe. Yeah. I mean, there's one guy has got a full set of brains and the other guy, you wonder, right? Um, and, and he's already proven that, that he's just he'll do anything, uh, say anything uh, to 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 protect to protect Donald Trump. But this is really part of the effort to undermine Robert Mueller's investigation, mm-hmm. isn't it? It's uh, to undermine uh, undermine Robert Mueller to uh, undermine Rod Rosenstein. 
because I think Trump at some level realizes, hey, I can't get rid of Mueller. So I'm going to kind of stack the against against Rosenstein, who signed off on these uh, these, these FISA warrants uh, and try to get him removed to get somebody in there who can better control Mueller. Um, you know, and I think so he's got Comey out. He's got McCabe out now. He's you know, his next target is Rosenstein. Rosenstein. Yeah, I think that's probably right. You know, and I think, look, the undermining of the career law enforcement folks at FBI is just so troubling on so many levels. And look, I mean, I, you know, we as Democrats certainly had our beefs with the FBI in 2016. Well, Comey was no friend of Hillary's. <laughs> Hardly, right? Hardly. Uh, but I don't think, you know, we went after the institution of the mm -hmm. FBI in this kind of deliberate. No. It, not only the FBI, look, but let's also say the intelligence communities as well. It's the consistent disregard of the intelligence on Russia over the last uh, year and a half, two years. Well, Donald Trump started out by attacking them, right? Yeah. I mean, and is, has, hasn't let up on it. But You know, look, so I, 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 I'm hopeful that we recalibrate after the end of the, the Trump administration. My concern is that the damage that he's doing to the law enforcement intelligence uh, operations will take much, much longer to repair. And and this is this has consequences in the whole intelligence gathering network, doesn't? I mean, it's not my long long suit, but why would countries? But you would see that countries, other countries, might hesitate to give us intelligence if, in fact, the president of the United States is attacking our intelligence agencies and saying you can't trust them. Well, attacking them, and you remember that famous Oval Office meeting? I guess what was was it with? Kislyak, Kislyak, and, and and the president is demeaning the intelligence operations and actually apparently disclosed information uh, to the Russians right there. And if at that point our closest allies can't trust what will happen to the intelligence, they're just not going to share it anymore. Right. So uh, I made this point earlier, but it, it it just seems to me what's what's really out of whack here is here we have, the, without doubt, the Russian government was trying to influence the uh, the outcome of the 2016 presidential election. They meddled in it in many, many different ways. We don't even know to the extent yet, or whether there was any cooperation between the Trump administration or the Trump team, if you will, and the Russians. But th th that fact that a foreign government trying to undermine our election, um, which is we should be focused on, how did it happen? What did they do? How do we get back at them if, if we can? And how do we prevent it ever happening again by any foreign government? And instead of looking at that, the Russian, uh, the Republicans in Congress are focused on declaring war against the FBI and the Justice Department and the broader intelligence community. And, and meanwhile, yesterday, and the other news that got sort of buried in this process was the bipartisan sanctions bill against Russia. The administration said, "Hey, we're not gonna we're not gonna impose those sanctions." This is a bill that was. Uh, you know, in a period of time when we can't get anything done in the United States, only five members of Congress in the House and Senate voted against this bill. This is overwhelmingly passed. And the Trump administration says, hey, we're not going to impose sanctions. You know, and, and, and look, if you want to look for the quid pro quo, you can tie all these things together pretty easily. Will you wonder when that happens what Vladimir Putin has on Donald Trump? <laughs> and hopefully we will find out soon, courtesy of Mr. Mueller. Or... Christopher Steele. Or Christopher Steele. <laughs> yeah. But Robert Mueller is the one we can we can we can really trust on this. Bye. Oh man, we're just getting started, it feels like. But anyhow. Chris, it's great to see you. Always fun. Thanks for coming in so much. Uh, on Twitter you can follow Chris at Chris Lou forty four. That's right. That's the old Obama days. That's huh? right. Chris Lou forty four. Hey folks, we'll take a quick break and uh, back with Umer Irfan from Vox uh, to talk about um, all the damage that Scott Pruitt is doing at EPA. We'll be right back.
Bill's commentary, the best clips from the show, all in one place. YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Tuesday, January 30. What do you say, everybody? Great to see you. Uh, State of the Union Day here in Washington, D.C. That's the big buzz. Just down the street from our studio right here on Capitol Hill, six blocks down the street, the United States Capitol Building, where everybody gathers uh, this evening at 9 o'clock Eastern for the State of the Union. And we're coming to you live, reaching out to you nationwide, coast to coast, online on YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Joining you on WCPT out in the greater Chicago area. Uh, Looking good out in Chicago today and also looking good on Free Speech TV nationwide as well. And we're brought to you today by the International Association of Sheet Metal, Air, Rail, and Transportation Workers. You put those all together, Sheet Metal, Air, Rail, and Transportation. They call it the Smart Union. And check out uh, the good work that they do under President Joseph Sellers at their website, smart-union.org. So President Obama will see tonight. Uh, President Obama, I wish, I wish. President <laughs> Trump uh, see tonight uh, <clears throat> whether or not... Um, he says anything about the environment, he certainly will probably talk about his energy policy. Covering energy and environmental issues for Vox, Umer Irfan joins us in studio, staff writer for Vox. Hello, Umer. Nice to see you. Good morning. Thanks for coming in. Um, when he was in Davos, uh, Donald Trump gave an interview to Pierce Morgan, who used to be on The Apprentice. He didn't do so well on The Apprentice, did he? I rate. guess not. But this was sort of Piers Morgan's revenge. He gets introduced as former boss. Uh, and he asked him about climate change. Are you a believer or not? Here's Mr. Trump. Do you believe in climate change? Do you think it exists? Uh, I, there is a cooling and there's a heating. I mean, look, it used to not be climate change. It used to be global warming, right? right? That wasn't working too well because it was getting too cold all over the place. Uh, The ice caps were going to melt. They were going to be gone by now. But now they're setting records, okay? They're at a record level. Uh, There were so many things happening, Piers. Uh, I'll tell you what I believe in. I believe in uh, clean air. I believe in crystal clear, beautiful water. I believe in just having good cleanliness and all. Oh, it's great to have such an environmentalist uh, in uh, in the White House. Fact check. Okay. Um, am I correct in saying that global warming and climate change still both terms are being are used today? Yes, that's correct. They're both accurate to describe what's going on. Look, it's very, very simple, guys. There's yeah. a cooling and there's a heating. And- yeah, there's yeah, a cooling it. and there's, there's a, a cooling heating. And there's a heating. Yeah. Some days it's hot, some days it's cold. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. God. Right. Uh, so so the global warming they haven't abandoned the phrase global warming to talk all about climate change. Uh, the ice caps are at a record level today, meaning he means bigger than ever. Uh, well, it de- not necessarily. I mean, the polar ice cap on the North Pole is actually at a record low, but we're seeing a lot of sea ice in the Antarctic. And sea ice is actually a function of melting ice on land. So that's actually a kind of a signal that actually we're seeing greater melt on land and that's being moved into the water. But the polar caps are melting. The polar caps are definitely melting. The glaciers are melting. Yes. They ain't coming back. No. Right. Uh, and the fi- final check that Donald Donald Trump is the champion of clean air and clean water. Have his actions as president demonstrated that? 
Uh, n- no, they have not. And he's actually been working to dial back a lot of the standards that we've established already. So not just in not r- putting out new rules, but also in rolling back some of the existing rules that are there. Um, I saw last night uh, that – so in his uh, first not called a State of the Union speech, but his speech to a joint session of Congress last February 28, uh, Donald Trump said that – one of his goals was to, quote, promote clean air and clean water. Uh, that very day, earlier that very day, he had signed an executive order rolling back the uh, clean water rule, right? And yeah. since then, there have been many more. Right. right. And just last week, we saw them uh, rolling back an important standard in the Clean Air Act that limits toxic chemicals for major sources for pollution. So both the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act rolled back under under Donald Trump. As, yes. Right. Um, so today, and and the, his agent to do that is the administrator of the EPA, Scott Scott Pruitt. Uh, remind us again of Scott Pruitt's background. So Scott Pruitt um, notoriously was the attorney general of the state of Oklahoma, and in that role, he very proudly challenged the EPA on a lot of its environmental rules, suing the agency 14 times. I mean, this is something that he put on his LinkedIn profile as well, that he was one of the main leaders of the states that are challenging the overreach of the federal government. Right. So he's the uh, archenemy of, uh, of EPA, appointed diabolically by Donald Trump to head EPA. Uh, Scott Pruitt testified, will testify today on the Hill. I'm sure you'll be there at the Energy and um, Public Works Committee. Right? Environment and Public Works. Environment, yes. Environment and Public Works Committee uh, uh, of the House. Uh, how do you think he'll be received? Is he the Republicans' hero, or do, they, do even they question what he's up to? Uh, well, it's actually the Senate committee, but oh, yeah, Senate. Sorry. yes. And um, he's, um, I mean, uh, everybody I mean, everybody has to breathe clean air. Everybody has to drink water. And so there, there is a lot, there is some degree of pushback that's building. Um, and so while he is deregulating a lot of the industries that Republicans like, namely uh, the oil and gas sector and some of the chemicals industries that... <laughs> think that the regulations from EPA are onerous. Uh, there are issues like, you know, Superfund sites, which everybody, just about every state has one. And people are concerned that the, these toxic chemical sites that are not are not being cleaned up appropriately or they're not getting the adequate attention of the administrator. Um, Pruitt himself has said that this is a priority for him, getting these toxic sites cleaned up. But he uh, cut fundings for the, uh, for the Department of Justice program that actually pursues the polluters to make them pay up for this. So what's his record as uh, his first, just objectively, his record one year in as administrator of EPA? Uh, He stands out among the cabinet secretaries in that he's actually very competent. He knows the agency pretty well from as somebody who's been fighting it from the outside. So he's been actually quite strategic about rolling back a lot of the work and delivering relief to the agency. Given his beliefs? Yes. I think it's frightening that he's so competent because that means he can accomplish more than somebody like probably a Rick Perry could. This is kind of like the problem that Democrats have with Mike Pence, right? Like, yes, we would like to see Trump get run out of office, but yeah. Mike Pence actually kind of knows what he's doing, even though he's an ideologue. Like, he can get yeah. things done. Yeah. Whereas yeah. Donald Trump, we've well, seen he can't get much done because I, he's such a buffoon. And I think, Omar, what you're saying about Scott Pruitt is he can get things done. And right. has gotten things done, right? Absolutely. Particularly through executive order. Is that correct? Yeah. Through executive order and or, then, I mean, a lot of the deferential authority that the agency has itself. So that he's able to, to get certain things done. Exactly. And we've seen that in clean air, you mentioned, in clean water. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also regulations, well, part of the clean air thing, what about coal? 
So, um, I mean, as far as coal, I mean, what the big thing was that he got, he convinced President Trump to withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord. And so that was the big looming threat to the coal industry that eventually we would be regulating greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, there were some rules on stream protection that EPA was in the process of implementing that he stopped. And um, I think that there are also some particulate emission standards and some of the broader enforcement uh, of existing laws has declined. I mean, not just against coal, but against everyone. I think they're collecting 60% fewer fines in this time period than the Obama administration did. So they're not actually go um, aggressively pursuing the people that are violating the law. Uh, and what about the um, regulations adopted under the Obama administration on, for new or existing coal-fired power plants? Yeah, so that would be the, um, I mean, the par big part of that was the uh, clean power plant, and that was promulgated through the EPA. It was stalled, as you may recall, uh, by the Supreme Court. They put a stay on it. They didn't actually rule against it, but they mm -hmm. said that there were some lower court lawsuits that they wanted to allow them to run their course before they allow this to go into effect. Now, the clean power plant wasn't actually sch scheduled to go into effect until 2020 or 2022, but it was basically um, an important signal to the coal industry that essentially that they had to comply Right. Or, or utilities had to start getting out, and they were already adding that to their calculus. Are we building any new coal-fired power plants in this country? No, we're not. Um, and some of the, a lot of the existing ones are on the ropes, and that's part of uh, why um, Energy Secretary Rick Perry, he had this plan to bail out coal and nuclear power plants that was just earlier this month shot down by the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. They said his grounds for doing so on grid reliability made no sense, and this would destroy the energy markets. Well, there again, uh, the if the more incompetent Rick Perry is unable to get things done. If that had been under Scott Pruitt, he might have found a way. He found a way to do it. And I guess that's a point. Is um, we hear so much about Scott Pruitt uh, and his wrecking wrecking ball, rightfully so. But there's also um, Rick Perry at Energy and um, Ryan Zinke at Interior. That's correct. Uh, when you put the three of them together. Uh, Working for Donald Trump, <laughs> I'd say the environment's in trouble. Uh, uh, but so we haven't heard that much about Perry at Energy. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, that there were reports early on that Perry didn't fully grasp the scope of the Department of Energy. Oh, that, shocking. Um, and so I, for, for those who don't know, the Department of Energy, 60% of its budget is actually nuclear. So that's nuclear yeah. weapons, waste, and cleanup. And then of the bulk of the remainder is actually science. They operate 17 national laboratories. And beyond that, in terms of energy, like they only have they have very limited regulatory authority over energy. That's namely uh, licensing export facilities. And so the Trump administration has licensed, you know, natural gas export facilities. Uh, they they opened a new one off the coast of Louisiana, and that's a big part of their energy push. But uh, Rick Perry hasn't been able to get a whole lot done for energy from his post there, just because the department doesn't actually the Department of Energy doesn't actually do a whole lot on the ground in terms of energy. That's mainly the Department of Interior, and that's where you're seeing a lot of movement as well. Right. So who is um, the lead person on Donald Trump's energy environmental policy? It's hard to say at this point. I mean, I, they, he's getting pulled in a lot of different directions. Um, I mean, that, I mean, you know, you had uh, Rex Tillerson, who was actually trying to pull him to stay within the Paris Climate Accord, even though you know, he's the former executive at ExxonMobil, uh, whereas you have people on the ground that are forced, um, asking him to, you know, open more lands, more public lands to drilling and extraction. And uh, there's uh, there's also a greater push for export. And some people are a little bit concerned that if we push more American natural resources abroad, that will undermine uh, some of the markets here at home, that if we start um, exporting, that it'll raise prices. And that for some, for some of the in the industry, that's actually a feature, not a bug. 
that we've been suffering from, uh, I guess they, they've been suffering from very low natural gas prices. It's been hard to be profitable. So they're desperate for an export market where they can sell and then help raise prices and increase demand. Well, um, in terms of who's driving policy, um, I think it was the New York, no, it was uh, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse recently who, who released a memo uh, that had been sent to Donald Trump from the head of one of the big coal companies, Murphy, is that his name? Uh, Robert, uh, Robert Murray. Robert Murray, yeah. right, right. Uh, basically, I mean, reminded me of when Dick Cheney, oil man, writes the gets invites the oil industry executives in to write the policies for the George W. Bush, developed policies for the George W. Bush Energy Administration. That um, it looked like Trump turned to Murray and said, "Hey, tell us what we ought to be doing for coal." And Murray did, and Trump did. Yes, and, and like there was a literal wish list, and so far they've checked off items on it, things like you know getting the stream protection rule lifted, also things like mining enforcement and safety rules changed. But he also has some pretty ambitious things on the list, too. He wants to under, undo the endangerment finding for carbon dioxide at the Environmental Protection Agency. This is the legal grounds under which the EPA has to regulate greenhouse gases. Upheld and, by the Supreme Court. That's correct. And so this is a Supreme Court decision that they want to overturn, and this is going to be a big lift. And Scott Pruitt so far has shown that he's not really having the appetite for that because it's going to be a long, messy legal fight and it's going to suck a lot of oxygen out of the room. But Robert Murray really wants to get rid of that because that is the one thing that is threatening his industry, that even if EPA rolls back the clean power plan under the law, they have to come up with another rule that complies with that order because under the law, EPA is required to regulate greenhouse gases. Right. Um what role does Ryan Zinke play in all of this in terms of energy policy? You mentioned public lands a couple of times. That's his domain. Oh, right? yeah. And so and he's been a big promoter of that. So one of the things he's done is shrink the amount of uh, jurisdiction that the federal government has in some public lands. I mean, there was this big fight over the Bears Ears National Monument. Uh, basically, the Department of the Interior wanted to define it smaller so that much smaller so that, um, you know, mining interests could exploit the land. And similarly, just a few weeks ago, they opened almost all coastal waters in the United States to offshore drilling, and then all of a sudden turned around and exempted Florida because Rick Scott has a, is eyeing a Senate run, and uh, Rick Scott being the governor of Florida. And so he's hitting his term limit this year, and he wants to position himself as an environmentalist. Uh, can Ryan Zinke just wave his magic wand and open up all federal oil, uh, f federal waters on the East Coast, the West Coast, and the Gulf Coast to offshore drilling? I mean, it, it, just because it, the federal government allows it doesn't mean it's necessarily going to happen. Um, I mean, there are a lot of state-level rules, and so a lot of states are saying that they were, they're going to start protecting their coastal waters. And it's not, it's not clear that the industry actually even wants this. I mean, we do have moderately low oil prices at, the point, at this point, and, you know, offshore drilling is way more expensive than onshore drilling. And there's a lot of onshore oil that we're still not drilling as well, and they, they also opened up onshore land as well. So this is more of a strategic long-term play for the oil industry. And they've also said that they were, they're really not looking to develop in new areas so much as use a lot of the existing infrastructure. So probably around the Gulf Coast, probably around Alaska and some of the other areas where they have already been doing it. But they want to have this in their back pocket because the oil industry is so volatile. Right. Uh, I mean, I can tell you, I, I'm really skeptical about this. Uh, I, I, it, coming from California, mm -hmm. it ain't going to happen in California. I mean, I don't know what California – California will secede – from the union before they will allow offshore drilling on, on federal waters off that coast. I mean, it's this battle has been, it goes back to the Santa Barbara oil spill, what, in the 60s maybe, I forget, I don't know, uh, 1960s. 
whenever it was. I mean, this battle's been fought and won in California. But that's and, actually an interesting question. Like, yeah. what if they just said, no, no, there's not going to be any offshore drilling here? What, what is now, the they are federal. I mean, the state, state waters go out, I forget. Sure. 100 miles or some 50 miles, whatever it is, yeah. right? And then there's the federal waters. Right. right? The Outer Continental Shelf is what Outer we're Continental Shelf. Mm-hmm. But still, um, for one thing, they've got to bring that oil on shore somewhere. Right. And that's part of why they're looking. They want to, they say that um, I actually asked. Uh, where, um, where the state does get involved. And right. by the way, what I say about California is true of Oregon and Washington, too. It ain't going to happen. I mean, uh, I, uh, that's, I mean I'm not still saying so you shouldn't pay any attention to what Ryan Zinke is doing but there's a there's, there's a big process between Ryan Zinke saying that and it actually platform showing up right but i mean i think it's it's still like it's, uh, like i said it's an important signal to the industry that basically yeah. that they have a friend at the department of the interior that if there are any contentious issues that do rise to his jurisdiction he's very likely going to be on their side and meanwhile what is this administration you know the one thing about I wasn't entirely happy as an environmentalist with Barack Obama's energy po- or environmental policy or, or energy policy because his was the all of the famous all of the above, right? Yeah, yeah. He but he did more for renewable energy than any other president has done, no doubt about it. In terms of investment in solar and wind and tax credits and the whole thing, uh, what is happening to all of that in this administration? Is renewable even part of the picture? I mean, it's uh, it's there on the margins. The big issue is that a lot of the market incentives were being challenged. Um, I mean, one, one, there was that Rick, Rick Perry's coal proposal for bailouts, which would basically give some sort of favorability to coal and nuclear power plants, which would undermine the case for um, renewables in some markets because they can bid in at a very low price because there's no cost for wind and, for wind and sunlight. They have almost no fuel cost. And so in, um, when the wind is blowing and the sun is shining, they can be very, very cheap. Uh, the big threat was the uh, tax bill, the, the tax overhaul plan that they were putting together. They wanted to repeal the production tax credit and the investment tax credit. These are the big incentives for wind and solar power. And uh, they, they were kind of on the ropes. Every few years, they come up for renewal. And they're already scheduled to ramp down, but a lot, some of the uh, Republicans wanted to get rid of them entirely, uh, particularly from the, those from, uh, from coal-producing states and things like that, because they thought that you know, renewables were getting an unfair advantage. That actually went well, ended up going through. But just this month, the uh, Trump administration passed new tariffs on solar panels. Right. I was going to ask you about those next. Okay. So what does that do to the solar industry? So that's um, – it's, it's, um, it's uh, very likely not going to make a huge difference, but it is going to be uh, making a difference. Uh, the main issue is that they're going to be starting uh, 30% tariffs on – any capacity imported above 2.5 gigawatts. So basically, after the first uh, chunk of imported solar panels, they're going to start taxing them pretty heavily. That's going to raise the final installed cost about 10% for solar for both residential and I think utility scale. And that 10% price increase will throw off, you know, projects that were kind of marginal on their finances. So people that were on the tipping point about whether or not they would install them on their rooftops, you know, this would be adding, you know, another $2,500 to their final bill for a rooftop installation of about $25,000. And for some utility projects, that might scrub them as well. And uh, I, the reasoning behind this was that, you know, the Chinese manufacturers and now subsequently those in Southeast Asia and also uh, South Korea, they were putting solar panels into the U.S. market uh, that were being subsidized by their governments, and they were undercutting U.S. manufacturers. Are there um, sufficient American solar um, panel manufacturers who will benefit from this or can pick up the slack or offer a cheaper product? 
No, I, no, that, that, that's been the big issue is that, um, I mean, there's been a lot of consolidation in the solar industry. The big U.S. manufacturers, Suniva and Solar World, they're actually owned by, uh, Suniva is actually owned by a Chinese company and Solar World <laughs> is actually owned oh. by a German company. They employ, I mean, uh, of the roughly um, 38,000 jobs in uh, solar uh, manufacturing, about 2,000 are actually in the physical manufacturing jobs, whereas the bulk of solar, about a quarter million, it's going to be about mainly in the installation side. So these are the people that are actually putting solar panels on the rooftops and whatnot. Which is crazy. I mean, it's just like we've given up, you know, making televisions or iPhones or cars. <laughs> now, finally, we're making cars again. But, mm -hmm. yeah, uh, and solar panels, we should be manufacturing them here. Uh, I'm sure we could manufacture better products, cheaper products, but we don't. So uh, that's not going to change overnight. But I want to come back to these tax credits. I mean, the, the offshore oil... I mean, not Australia, but the oil de depletion allowance, isn't that what they call it? The, what? Yeah, accelerated depreciation or something. Whatever. I mean, that the mm -hmm. oil companies, my point is that they've been getting tax benefits for developing, producing new wells, exploring new wells on land, offshore, for 100 years, right? Mm -hmm. So why not give some tax benefits to the solar and wind energy? I mean, the argument against uh, uh, that sector. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the, there's this pursuit of this mythical level playing field and energy that people are after. And Rick Perry, to his credit, has said that, you know, there's no such thing as a level playing field and energy. So he's uh, and, but uh, but yeah, that's been the argument is that one industry has been subsidized so much. Why not? Yeah. Give another right. one a boost. All right. Out of time. Mary Irfan, I'm sorry, it's from uh, Vox at Vox.com. So uh, Scott Pruitt is lining up to give his testimony today. Go get him. <laughs> I'll do my best. All right. Yeah. Keep on top of that guy. Hey, folks, have a great day. Thanks for being with us today. Come back tomorrow. We'll be looking for you. This is the Bill Press Show. Have you ever wondered how to say good morning in Italian? Or what is goodbye in French? You can ask Alexa. Just say, what is happy birthday in German? Or how do you say hello in Japanese? Do you want to know how to say I love you in Spanish? Ask Alexa and start learning a new language today.